I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and six one since that matters. And what do I even say other than hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better and dating safer. They've changed. So you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hi, I'm Madigan, and you're listening to Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist, a podcast that explores the world through a personal feminist perspective. Hey, everyone. Sorry to be getting this episode to you late and a week late even because I had originally anticipated getting this episode up last week. But as you can probably see from how long this episode is... It took me a little longer than a week to get all my shit together and make sure this story was fully formed and fleshed out and this episode was looking a way that I felt proud of and it was pretty and whatever, you understand. And then on top of it, you are getting this episode a day late because your girl was very sick. I'm actually still very sick. This is going to be interesting. I'm going to be out of breath, I feel like, throughout recording this episode. I've got a nasty, nasty cold, and I literally spent seven and a half hours in bed during the day yesterday when I was planning on recording and editing this episode, and somehow I even slept through the night. So if that doesn't prove to you all how sick I am, I don't know what else will. I am so excited to get into today's episode. I have done so much research on this topic. I used a million different websites and then I still felt like I wasn't getting the information that I wanted, particularly about Molly in this story. So I downloaded the audiobook Killers of the Flower Moon by David Gran, who is kind of like the expert on this whole case. It's what the movie is based on. 
And I listened to most of that, jumped around a little bit because I had a lot of work to do. But I'm really glad that I did because it gave me a much fuller picture of this story rather than just piecing things together that I found online. So there are all of my excuses for why it took so long, but also reasons as to why I think this episode is going to be particularly great. So I'll give you the spiels for everything else at the end. Now you can just sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode. In 2017, the nonfiction novel Killers of the Flower Moon was published. The book's author, David Grand, told the story about the Osage Reign of Terror and one of its major characters in this historical event, Molly Burkhart, along with her husband, Ernest, and her family. More recently, in October of 2023, the movie adaptation of the book, which goes by the same name, premiered in theaters. The film was directed by Martin Scorsese and stars his favorites, Leonardo DiCaprio, Jesse Plemons, who is my personal favorite as I do know him in real life, and Robert De Niro. The music for the film was done by one of my favorite musicians of all time, on top of all of the amazing actors involved in this film. Robbie Robertson had worked with Martin Scorsese on so many films ever since, I believe, the 80s. And for those of you who don't know who Robbie Robertson is, go to your Spotify immediately and look up the band. They encapsulate what my favorite style of music is because they originated it. Robbie, unfortunately, very recently passed away in August of this year. And Killers of the Flower Moon, I think, was his last project, at least with films. It's obvious how much of a music lover Martin Scorsese is as well because he often casts musicians in roles in his films. And it's funny because we clearly have very similar taste as Jason Isbell, one of my favorite artists of all time, plays Bill Smith, Jack White is in the film, and so is Sturgill Simpson. Other cast includes Lily Gladstone, who plays Molly, Tantu Cardinal, playing Molly's mother Lizzie, John Lithgow, and Brendan Fraser. Today, I'm going to tell you the story behind the killers of the Flower Moon and focus mainly on Molly and how one of the largest tragedies in our country's history affected her and her descendants. But first, we must get a bit of history on the Osage people in order to fully understand this story. The Osage people have been around since about 700 BC, and by the 17th century, they lived near the Missouri and Mississippi rivers. The term Osage is a French version of the tribe's name, Wazhazi. In turn, they called the French explorers heavy eyebrows due to their facial hair. The Osage, much like other native tribes, were pushed around and fought with since the 1600s during colonial times. But by the time the 19th century came along, the Osage had become one of the most dominant powers in the region. This was made easier by the fact that they are known to have been the tallest race of men in North America, according to the 19th century painter George Catlin. The tribe controlled the area between the Missouri and Red Rivers, the Ozarks to the east, and the foothills of Wichita Mountains to the south. A missionary, Isaac McCoy, described them as being an uncommonly fierce, courageous, warlike nation. He's also quoted saying that he found them to be, quote, the finest-looking Indians I had ever seen in the West. Hmm. However powerful and gorgeous they were, they were not as powerful as the United States government. The Osage and the U.S. government signed the Osage Treaty, their very first treaty, 
on November 10, 1808, in order to ward off a war from arousing between them, and the U.S. government promised to protect the Osage from attacks from other tribes. In this treaty, the Osage ceded 52,480,000 acres of land to the federal government. As was usually the case in these sorts of things, the Osage would soon find that the government had no plans to uphold their end of the agreement. They were then forced to move from modern-day Kansas to Indian Territory that is in present-day Oklahoma in 1810 to a reservation. The United Foreign Ministry Society sent clergy to them, and they supported the tribe's people and established a union. So there was a reason why I specifically posted last week's episode, and that is because I wanted to have this image fresh in our minds for what happened to a lot of Native children during this time. In the episode that I posted last week, I take a deeper dive into both the Canadian and U.S. residential schools for Native children, so you should be pretty familiar with this concept by now. In 1869, Ulysses S. Grant announced that he would delegate control of all U.S. Indian agencies to Christian denominations. Protestants and Quakers came first, then came the Catholics. It's reported that the Osage actually found the Catholic religion kind of cool, as they felt the religion had a sense of mystery and ritual, which was much like their own traditions. But this feeling was not felt by all. Some other researchers say that the tribe's embrace of the Catholic religion could have been strategic rather than sincere. It could have been some sort of compromise, or it could also be some sort of status symbol as well. The churches were given immense power over tribal affairs. Compulsory education laws for Native children were passed in 1884, and in 1887, the St. Louis Church for Girls would open in Powhuska, the capital, followed by the St. John School for Boys in 1888 in Hominy. These schools were hell for these children, as they were forced to convert to Catholicism and other Western standards and completely remove themselves from their Native culture. At these schools in particular, many children would try to run away, but when that happened, one of the men working at the school would chase after them on horseback and lasso the child, and then drag that child back to school like a wounded animal. In 1872, the Osage became one of the few American tribes to buy their own reservation. As a result, they gained back more rights to the land and its sovereignty. But how were they able to raise that amount of money? They knew they had to play the white man's game to get ahead. Following the Civil War and the victory of the Union, the Drum Creek Treaty was passed by Congress in July 15, 1870, which provided that the remainder of the Osage land in Kansas be sold and the proceeds would be used to relocate the tribe to Indian Territory. The Osage decided to delay their response, and by doing so, they benefited greatly. When the presidency switched over from Andrew Jackson, boo, that racist son of a bitch, they sold their lands to the Peace Administration of Ulysses S. Grants, and in return, they received $1.25 per acre rather than the previously offered 19 cents. The reservation of approximately 1,470,000 acres was purchased in 1872, located in present-day Osage County, Oklahoma. They brought the Catholic missionaries along with them. They established four towns, Pawhuska, the capital, Hominy, Fairfax, Greyhorse, and built some schools and churches. Sorry if that seems slightly out of order, but both of these things are kind of going on at the same time. However, just like it had always been, the U.S. government did not give them their full annuity in cash, and they failed to provide full or even satisfactory rations as part of these annuities. 
Many of the Osage people starved, and during the time period of the Depression in the 1870s, the Indian Office reported a 50% decline in the Osage population. It was an absolutely devastating time for them. To fight this, in 1879, an Osage delegation went to Washington, D.C. to ask for their full annuity payment in cash. They were thankfully successful, and they became the first Native American nation to gain full cash payments of annuities. With this, they were gradually able to build up their tribe again, but still found trouble with the encroachment of white outlaws, vagabonds, and thieves. In October of 1897, the Phoenix Oil Company drilled the first successful oil well on the Osage Reservation after getting permission from the Bureau of Indian Affairs. To do so, a deal was made that a 10% royalty would be awarded to each Osage person of all the money made from the oil. All subsurface materials, including oil, are owned by the Osage Nation and held in a trust for them by the federal government. But the federal government was not showing up for this side of the deal once again. So Chief James Bakehart negotiated with the U.S. government in 1907, reaching a deal which enabled them to retain communal mineral rights to the reservation lands. They were able to convince the government to allot each tribal member a large parcel of land, but Bakehart also added another thing to the addendum. He wrote that the oil, gas, coal, and other minerals beneath the land itself would be reserved for the Osage themselves. The Osage were well aware of the mass amounts of oil deposits lying below their reservation and wanted to ensure that their best interest was protected. The government would then lease the lands on their behalf for oil development. Then the companies or the government sent the Osage members royalties, which by the time our story takes place in the 1920s, had dramatically increased their wealth. Each member of the Osage, about 2,228 at the time, received 657 acres of land in 1906. They kept the communal mineral rights to what was below the surface of the land, which would eventually be nicknamed the Underground Reservation. And as the development of resources grew, members of the tribe received Osage head rights, paid according to the amount of the land they had. The head rights are a very, very, very important part of this story. And head rights are property rights, protected under federal law, that entitle their owner to receive a quarterly payment from the Osage Mineral Estate. And they were worth a lot. By 1923, about the middle of this story, the Osage would earn more than $30 million in royalties. But many of the Osage people were not deemed competent enough to manage their own money. So the government gave any full-blooded Osage person a guardian. If you were half Osage or less, you were more likely to be able to have control over your own head right, but Molly's family, being full Osage, would not be in control of any of their finances. This is an overtly racist system, as the U.S. government didn't believe the Osage were competent or smart enough to take care of their own money. Also, this head right can only be inherited by legal heirs, meaning that the Osage people could not give them away or sell them to other people. This began a trend of white men and women marrying members of the Osage nation, as many saw this as the only way to inherit their riches. Once the money started rolling in, the Osage were exposed to a sort of lifestyle they had never been awarded before, and many of them really enjoyed it. 
They bought fancy cars and built nice homes, put on flashy, westernized clothing, and some women even began cutting their hair into the hottest trend of the 1920s, the bob. But Molly Kyle was different. She still wore her hair long down her back and chose to stick to the traditional Osage attire, often seen wearing what was referred to as an Indian blanket wrapped around her shoulders. Molly had been westernized a bit, though, as she really attached herself to the Catholic religion while in school, and she did enjoy a bit of her fortune by buying herself a couple of nice cars and hiring a staff of white and Hispanic servants. She had learned some English in school, but was definitely not fluent and spoke mostly her native language. Molly was the eldest daughter, and she was also in the poorest health. She suffered from diabetes in a time when insulin was just becoming a common medicine for the illness. It certainly wasn't making its way to the reservations quite yet. Molly's mother, Lizzie Q, was even more old-fashioned, as she lived through the entire time of the drastic change in the reservation. Molly's sister Anna was the flashy one, and definitely the party animal. Anna loved bright colors and fashionable outfits, and she also loved to drink, even though at the time of this story, we're at the height of prohibition. On top of her drinking, she had also gained a reputation around town for being a bit of a floozy. She dated around, enjoyed the company of men, and was known to go out dancing and stay out until the sun came up. You do you, Anna. Especially because she had just recently divorced her husband, Oda Brown. There's less mention of Molly's sister Rita, but while reading the book, I got the impression that she was more reserved, shy, and more of a nervous woman. She was married to Bill Smith, a white man and former horse thief, who had actually previously been married to Molly's third sister, Minnie. Minnie had unfortunately passed away in 1918. As she died slowly, doctors surmised that she was suffering from some sort of wasting disease. It was strange because prior to this illness, the 27-year-old Minnie had always been perfectly healthy. Bill was known to be an occasionally violent man, which in my book is still just a violent man, and the book makes it seem like Rita is definitely in an abusive relationship. Gran writes that she was blind in love with Bill and stands by him even when he physically assaults her. Many are suspicious that Bill married both Minnie and Rita for the financial gain, for the financial gain, and after Minnie's death, Molly worried that Bill may have had a hand in it. Molly met Ernest Burkhart when he was working as a livery driver, which is like a taxi driver, for his uncle William Hale. They met while Molly was in the backseat of his car, and though Ernest spoke none of Molly's language and her English wasn't great, they hit it off. Ernest was 28 years old and a white man, who had moved to Fairfax from Greenville, Texas in 1912 to live with his uncle Hale when he was 19 years old. He grew up a poor cotton farmer and hoped to find fortune in the oil industry in Oklahoma. In 1917, Molly and Ernest would be married. Molly's head right at the time of their marriage was worth about $2,608.99 at the time, or about $82,000 today. She would also one day inherit the headrights of her relatives when they passed away, which altogether came to about $7 million at the time, and that's about $160 million today. The couple would have three children, Elizabeth, who they called Liz, James, who they called Cowboy, and Anna. I think it's very sweet that Elizabeth, or Liz, was definitely named after her mother, and Anna was named after her sister. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. 
Get 15% back at hundreds of stores. And it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free, and when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Now let's pick up where the story really gets going in May of 1921. Lizzie had moved in with Molly and Ernest as her health had begun to fail, and Molly contacted Anna, her sister, asking if she could come help her with her mother. She also had a small party planned and wanted Anna to come help her with the preparations. Anna showed up, dressed to the nines in red shoes, an alligator purse, and a traditional blanket. There was something else distinct about Anna's appearance, though, She was obviously drunk out of her gourd. Guests like Ernest's brother Brian, whom Anna had been known to go out with from time to time, and another brother Horace came, and Anna got more and more inebriated. As the party wore on, Anna began to heavily flirt with Brian, and also began fighting with Molly and her mother, as one does when they're hammered. As the luncheon drew to a close, Ernest set off to take some of the guests to a musical, and Brian offered to take Anna home because, of course he would, he probably wants to get laid. Molly was staying home to care for her mother, so she helped her sister to Brian's car. Molly didn't know this, but that would be the last time she would ever see her sister alive. After learning that no one had heard from or seen Anna since the party four days later, Molly began to grow worried. Molly and Ernest spoke with Brian, who said he had taken Anna straight home that night. They had gotten there about 4.30 or 5 p.m., Molly then sent Ernest over to Anna's house to check on her, but the home was dark and deserted. Anna's servant, who lived in a small home on the property, told him that she hadn't seen Anna in days. Could this really just be another one of her benders? News of Anna's disappearance made the reservation even more uneasy, as just days before, another Osage person, Charles Whitehorn, who happened to be a cousin of Molly's as well, had also gone missing. Charles was a 33-year-old popular man around town. He was married to a woman who was half-white, half-Cheyenne. A week after Anna's disappearance, an oil worker spotted a corpse poking out from the brush near the base of the oil rig. The victim had been shot twice, execution-style, right between the eyes. The body also was now so decomposed that it was nearly impossible to identify. But inside of the pocket on the body was a letter addressed to Charles Whitehorn. They had their man. Almost simultaneously, it seems, a father and son were out hunting when the son spotted yet another badly decomposing body in a ravine. 
This body was female, so the undertaker contacted Molly, knowing that her sister had been missing. It was nearly impossible to distinguish who this was, until Bill Smith, enraged over what may have happened to a family member, pried open her mouth, revealing Anna's distinct gold fillings on her teeth. They would also find the fancy outfit Anna was wearing that night near the body. The group who had joined Molly at the ravine, including her sister Rita, her husband Ernest, and his brother Brian, broke down in despair and grief. Two doctors in town, who often cared for Molly's family, James and David Schoen, performed an autopsy. Anna had also been shot execution style in the head, but she had no exit wound. That meant that the bullet must still be inside of her. But when the Schoen brothers did their autopsy and looked for it, they couldn't find the bullet. In their autopsy, they also discovered that Anna had been pregnant, but the father's identity was unknown. As Anna was divorced, her head right was passed on to her mother, Lizzie. At this time, especially on the reservation, quote, lawmen were largely amateurs, according to Grand's book. Harv M. Frias was the county sheriff at the time of Charles and Anna's murders, and he himself was known to rub elbows with the criminal underbelly of the area. No one took fingerprints, no cast impressions of the tire marks were made, no one checked the body for gunpowder residue, and no photos were taken of the scene. This didn't take place in the 1700s. This was the 1920s, and we did have some sort of investigatory tools at our exposure here, and none of them were being used. This was a bungled investigation from the very beginning. It also seemed that the local law enforcement didn't care about a bunch of dead Osage people, so Molly decided to take the investigation into her own hands. She went to her husband's uncle, William K. Hale, for help. Now, I need to take a pause in this story for now to introduce you to this very important character in our story. William Hale moved to Osage County in 1902. As a kid, he'd become a cowboy, leaving home at 16 to travel around Texas and Oklahoma territories buying and selling cattle, though it's been alleged that a lot of what he bought was actually stolen. At some point, he married a school teacher, name unknown, couldn't find it anywhere, and they spent their first spring as newlyweds living in tents in Oklahoma. They lived very meager lives, as Hale was allegedly already $10,000 in debt at this time. He worked as a rancher for a few years until he met a pair of local bankers who formed a partnership with him. Hale would eventually hold leases for about 45,000 acres of land and would own another five acres outright. He would also open a bank, a general store, and a funeral home in town. This amount of wealth and power he had amassed led him to give himself the nickname the King of Osage County. And that's really interesting to me because Jason Isbell, who plays Bill Smith in the film, wrote a song for his latest album called King of Oklahoma. And he said that he wrote it while he was on set. He uses the name Molly in the song. And I find it really interesting that he took this King of the Osage Hills idea and turned it into this song, King of Oklahoma. Even though the song isn't like closely tied to Killers of the Flower Moon or anything, it definitely gives me a similar vibe. Hale also made a point to be incredibly kind and generous to his Osage neighbors, referring to himself, once again, as the Osage's truest friend. Molly, much like many other Osage, agreed with this and saw him as one of their greatest benefactors. Hale also touted himself as a law and order man and vowed to Molly that he would get justice for Anna. 
Molly's family offered up a $2,000 reward, and Hale also promised his own rewards for both Anna and Charles Whitehorn's killers, stating, We've got to stop this bloody business. Bill Smith, Rita's husband, also began his own investigation. Many began to suspect that it could have been Anna's ex-husband, Oda Brown, who killed her. Molly, Brian, and Ernest were all questioned about the last time they saw Anna, particularly Brian, since he was the very last one to see her. Brian and Ernest were further detained and questioned, with Molly free to leave fairly quickly. After more questioning, Ernest and Brian were released shortly after. It didn't seem that they had anything to do with Anna's disappearance or her murder. Ernest told authorities in his testimony that he knows of no enemies she had or anyone who disliked Anna. They began to theorize that her killer had come from outside of the reservation. But another theory began to spread around the reservation itself, that whoever committed the crime was living among them in sheep's clothing. Hale, who was close to the county prosecutor, urged him and other officials to inquire further about Anna's murder. But this would only go for two months following her death, as by July, the Justice of the Peace closed any inquiries and declared Anna's death a mystery. They did the same with Charles Whitehorn. What in the fuck? I don't understand this. You investigate for two months and then you're like, oh, it's a mystery. Guess we'll never know. Case closed. That is fucked up. In the meantime, when Lizzie learns of Anna's death, she plunges into a deep state of grief, which did nothing for her already failing health. I had read in a few sources that Anna was considered the favorite of Lizzie's daughters, which of course would leave her particularly heartbroken. Parents, please stop choosing favorite children. At the same time that her favorite child's death was deemed a mystery, Lizzie too passed away. Local authorities, now apathetic it seems, failed to investigate Lizzie's death at all. But Bill Smith was now more frustrated and angrier than ever and felt that there was also something curious about Lizzie's death. Bill began to believe that Lizzie had died of poisoning, and he began to piece together that all of the recent deaths, Lizzie's, Anna's, Charles Whitehorn's, and maybe even Minnie's, were connected. Thankfully, since Sheriff Frias was a piece of shit, he was then charged with failing to enforce the law by the Oklahoma Attorney General, and he was now out of the picture. Hale hired a detective from Kansas who was called Pike, and another team of private eyes were hired, and William J. Burns, referred to as America's Sherlock Holmes, took the case. He's pretty famous. Everyone was once again questioned, and a more thorough investigation began. They even tracked down Anna's ex-husband, Oda Brown, who was found to have had an alibi since he was with another woman in another area on the night of Anna's death. He was cleared. Then, A.W. Comstock, a local attorney and the guardian of several Osage fortunes, showed up to offer his assistance as well. He said that he had heard Charles Whitehorn's widow, Hattie, had coveted her husband's money and was jealous of his relationship with another woman. They began to wonder if Anna's baby could have been Charles's, and Hattie killed them both in a jealous rage. Investigators tailed Hattie to no avail. One night in February of 1922, a 29-year-old Osage man named William Stepson received a call from his home in Fairfax and went out for a bit. When he returned to his wife and children, he looked visibly ill. He died within hours. Authorities believed that Stepson had been poisoned. 
A month later, another Osage woman died of a suspected poisoning. Then in July, yet another. As the deaths mounted, the tribe asked Barney McBride, a wealthy oilman, to travel to Washington in August 1922 to plead with the federal authorities to please come and investigate. When Barney got to his hotel in D.C., there was a telegram waiting for him. It eerily warned him to be careful. That night, he decided to go out. He played some billiards. But then, he was kidnapped. His body was found the following morning in Maryland. When word of his murder and kidnapping got back to Oklahoma, they took this as a warning. The Washington Post reported the incident under the headline, Conspiracy Believed to Kill Rich Indians. Well put, Post. Six months later, two men were out hunting near Fairfax when they spotted a car at the bottom of a rocky hill. This location happened to be the same place Anna's body was found. The men returned to town to alert the authorities, and when they arrived, they saw a man slumped over his steering wheel. The man was covered in blood and appeared to have been shot in the back of the head. They discovered the victim to be Henry Roan, who was 40 years old and married with two children. What many did not know, including Ernest Burkhart, was that Henry and Molly were actually once married in an arranged marriage in 1902 when she was still a teenager. The marriage didn't last long and it was kept a secret. Since it was a tribal marriage, when the relationship dissolved, no divorce was necessary and they went on their separate ways. But Molly, knowing her husband to be a jealous man, decided not to share this part of her past with him. Roan had also considered Hale to be his best friend. In fact, shortly before his death, he had entrusted Hale with his $25,000 life insurance policy. He said he did this after discovering his wife was having an affair and he didn't want her to get her mitts on his money. When the investigation began on Henry Roan's murder, Molly worried that somehow her previous secret marriage would be revealed. After years of now bloody deaths on the reservation, the Osage were taking all of the precautions. They put bright bulbs over the doors of their homes, keeping the entire reservation well lit at all hours of the day and night. Paranoia hit Molly's family particularly hard as they were tied to so many of the dead. Rita and her husband Bill grew so unsettled that they moved into a new home in the center of Fairfax, hoping for more safety there. But shortly after they moved... Strangely, the neighborhood dogs all began to die from believed poisoning. Bill, growing more and more afraid, confided in a friend that he did not expect to live much longer. At around 3 in the morning on March 10, 1923, a blast was heard across Fairfax. Molly and Ernest, at home in their bed, also felt it. Ernest, just in his slippers and pajamas, ran out of the house toward the fire, and realized that Bill and Rita's house had exploded and immediately turned to rubble. A search quickly began for the family that was inside the house, which included their servant, Nettie, in the ash. Bill was astoundingly found alive, but his legs had been, quote, seared beyond recognition. This is graphic, but apparently both Rita and Nettie's bodies had been found basically blown to pieces, according to Gran. The doctors took Bill to the hospital, but before he could be questioned, he lost consciousness. He woke up a few days later and submitted to questioning, but he struggled to speak. Four days after the bombing, he succumbed to his injuries and died. In April of 1923, the governor of Oklahoma dispatches his top state investigator to Osage County. 
This is a relief to many in the reservation as it has become a strong belief that the local investigations may have been corrupt. Why else had there been no questions answered? But this top investigator, within days, was found taking bribes from local crooks and was taken off the case as well as sent to prison. Well, what on earth were they supposed to do now? W.W. Vaughn, an attorney living in Pawhuska, had also been working with private investigators to solve the crimes. He received an urgent call from a friend of George Bigheart, the nephew of the former chief, in June 1923, informing Vaughn that George Bigheart had been a victim of a suspected poisoning. Vaughn then rushed to meet with him to see if he could get any information out of him. Before Vaughn left, he told his wife of a hiding spot in which he stashed his information about the evidence he'd collected and told her to turn it over to the authorities if anything should happen to him on his trip. You all know where I'm going with this, right? Vaughn got to the hospital and spoke privately with George Bigheart just hours before Bigheart passed away. When Vaughn left the hospital, he called the Osage sheriff and told him that he was on his way back with new information. He told the sheriff he knew everything, including who killed George Bigheart. Vaughn hopped on a train to head home, but at some time during the ride, he vanished. They found his mangled body just 36 hours later, just north of Oklahoma City. What in the actual fuck? I would be hightailing it the fuck out of Osage County at this point. The death toll had reached 24 at this point in the story, and this period was officially granted the name the Osage Reign of Terror. When W.W. Vaughn's wife learned of his death, she went to the hiding spot where all of his notes on the investigation had been held, and they were gone. Who knew they were there besides him and the wife? This story drives me crazy. <laughs> Soon after Vaughn's death, two more men who had assisted in the investigation also turned up dead, and the press wrote that this had become the bloodiest chapter in American crime history. Even the Justice of the Peace became too scared and threatened to take any inquests on the latest murders, so everyone was just left like sitting ducks, waiting to see who would be next. At the end of 1923, the Osage once again began to beg the federal government to help them. They wanted people not tied to the state so there would be less bias and corruption, and they needed them now. Molly was terrified, thinking that she would likely be the next target in this apparent plot to kill her entire family. Even William Hale had been targeted. His own pastures had been set on fire and his cattle were killed. This in particular frightened Molly even more, as Hale was so powerful in that area, and this made her retreat into her home. She no longer entertained neighbors, she stopped going to church, and rumors spread that she was unraveling mentally and that her diabetes was worsening. The only visitors she had were the Schoen brothers, who came to her home periodically to inject Molly with the new handy-dandy insulin medicine. There are no historical records that show us what Molly was up to for the next several years, except for one letter found from 1925, in which she wrote to a priest claiming that her life was in danger. She wrote that she was not dying of her diabetes, but she surmised that she was being poisoned herself. This priest and others may have seen this simply as a symptom of her paranoia, perhaps. In the summer of 1925, Tom White, the special agent in charge of the Bureau of Investigation's field office in Houston, 
received an urgent summons from headquarters in D.C. from J. Edgar Hoover, the new man in charge of the Bureau of Investigation, the precursor to the FBI. The BOI was created in July of 1908 by Attorney General Charles Bonaparte, who hired 33 people, who consisted of veterans, former cops, and members of the Secret Service, to take on federal cases in the United States. J. Edgar Hoover would serve as director of the Bureau from 1924 until 1972, being there for the change between the BOI and the FBI. He was only 29 years old when given the job, and he had no experience as a detective, had never made an arrest, or been in a shootout, but seemed to be a tactical man. White met Hoover in person in D.C., and Hoover told him to tell his wife and children that they would be relocating to Osage County, Oklahoma. Tom White was a former Texas Ranger described as old style, who was a towering six foot four and often dressed like a cowboy. He joined the BOI in 1917, and he was now reaching his 40s. He had no formal training as a law enforcement officer, but he was a good fact gatherer. He had a measured temper and good morals, believing there to be a, quote, thin line between a good man and a bad one. Prior to White's arrival in Osage, there had been previous agents sent to investigate, but none were able to make any headway, so White had to come up with his own plan. One of the first things he noticed is, even though virtually every member of her family had been killed off, no one had interviewed Molly. He also noticed that there was no modus operandi to these killings, as they have all been a variation of shootings, poisonings, and even stabbings and bombings. He sees this killer, or killers, as being a connoisseur of plots, not impulsive, but very calculating and patient. White also realized that the corruption in Osage was heavy enough to tamper any spread of truthful information, letting rumor and speculation run wild, coinciding with massive distrust in law enforcement. He set to work looking for evidence. But this would be tough as many of the records have mysteriously vanished and virtually no evidence was preserved from any of the crime scenes. The only thing he had was Anna's skull which had been removed after her body was disinterred for a second autopsy following her death, showing the size hole in her head, giving White the indication that she had been shot with a 32 or 38 caliber pistol. When White learns of the missing bullet, he grows suspicious. He concludes that there was a conspirator on the scene, or maybe even the killer himself was at the scene, able to swipe it. He assembled a team including a former New Mexico sheriff, a former fellow Texas Ranger, and an experienced undercover operative. He kept a man named John Berger from the previous investigation, seeing how his comprehensive knowledge of the case would be valuable. There was also Frank Smith, another Texan, and John Wren, a Native American from the Ute tribe and former spy for the revolutionary leaders in Mexico. White was wise to the racism that was rampant among former investigatory teams and saw Wren as a large asset in bringing a delicate and respectful hand as well as an empathetic perspective to the investigation. Smart on you, Tom White. The team entered the reservation one by one, all undercover. The former sheriff and ranger acted as a cattleman and befriended William Hale and another agent under the guise as an insurance salesman and visited the houses of several suspects. Agent Wren acted as a medicine man searching for his long-lost relatives, ingratiating himself into the community. White questioned the Schoen brothers about his autopsies done and missing the bullet. Unfortunately, they already knew that Tom White was an investigator, so he was the only one who didn't go undercover. 
He learned that there were many more people in attendance for the autopsy, making it impossible to say who fucked with the crime scene. Like I had said, the entire thing was bungled since the beginning. He decided then that he would go through corroborating each suspect's alibis. He spoke with a woman named Rose Osage who had started a rumor at one time that she had been the one to kill Anna Brown. When she first made this claim, it was eventually discovered to be untrue. But when White heard the story she told, how a strange white man had come to her house, written up a statement, and forced her to sign it, he realized that the conspirators weren't just erasing evidence, but they were manufacturing it as well. White then brought his attention to Brian Burkhart, the last one to see Anna alive in July of 1925. At first, his alibi seemed airtight, but when they went to corroborate it with an aunt and uncle who read the musical that night, they acted nervous and standoffish. They told the agents quickly that Brian had been with them at the show and ordered them to leave. White later followed a lead to some witnesses from the night who bravely agreed to talk with him. They told White that they had seen Anna and Brian together in a car in Ralston on the night of the murder, though much later than Brian had said that he had dropped Anna off. Remember, Brian had even testified in a coroner's inquest that he had dropped her off at home between 4.30 and 5 p.m. Brian was lying. Tom followed up with more and more witnesses, creating a timeline of Anna's evening. He discovered that the last sighting of Anna was 3 a.m. the following morning, not the evening of the 10th. There was also an alleged third man seen as well. A witness heard Brian shouting at Anna at one point in the night to stop her foolishness. And then Tom learned that Brian's neighbor spotted him returning home at sunrise, and Brian gave the man money to keep quiet. White also began to suspect that one of their informants, who was also a criminal, may have been one of the moles in their operation, as it was clear that reports were being leaked and stolen. White decided to meet with the private eye that William Hale had hired, Pike, which gave White a certain feeling as well. When they tracked down Pike and questioned him on his possible involvement, it was discovered that, wait for it, Pike was never really hired to solve the murder of Anna Brown, but was instead hired to conceal Brian's whereabouts on the night of the crime and help him shape an alibi. If Pike was telling the truth... His orders came directly from the king of the Osage Hills himself, William Hale. Pike also revealed one other pertinent piece of information. When he met Brian and Hale, one other person was present. Ernest Burkhart, Molly's husband. In September 1925, White began to wonder if maybe Bill Smith, though an asshole, had gotten wise to Hale and the Burkhart brothers, and whether a larger conspiracy connected to Molly's family in particular was taking place. White went to meet Bill's lawyer, who had been with him before his death. The lawyer revealed that Bill had told him that he only had two enemies in the world, William K. Hale and his nephew, Ernest Burkhart. Next were the Schoen brothers, as James Schoen was named administrator of Rita Smith's estate and was allowed to execute her will, which paid him very well. It became clear they had done the same to Bill shortly before his death, meaning that they would have a financial benefit for their deaths as well. White uncovered layer upon layer of corruption, with evidence leading to multiple white guardians and administrators using the systems available to them to swindle and cheat the very people they were supposed to be protecting. 
this was an elaborate criminal operation which permeated into almost every sector of their society. These guardians are often wealthy, prominent businessmen, lawyers, ranchers, politicians, and other lawmen. And judges often not only cover up, but facilitate the swindling for bribe money. Of course, it goes all the way to the top. But going back to Hale, White had learned from a woman that Hale had actually once torched his own land for insurance money. Something White found interesting since Hale had been the victim of his own land burning and cattle dying during the murders. White also looked into the insurance policy Hale held over Henry Roan and looked into why Hale was never questioned by authorities even though he had the largest motive to kill Henry Roan. While looking further into the policy, White discovered that Hale had initially tried to purchase Roan's headright, but when he was barred legally from doing so, he used the excuse that Ron owed him a large sum of money to get him to take out an incredibly expensive policy out on himself and give it to Hale in return. Tom White is aware that there is one legal way to obtain an Osage person's headright, inheritance. He saw more and more headrights being passed down to one person, Molly Burkhart. He saw the chronology of the murders unravel into a plan to leave Molly as the sole inheritor to a large group of headrights so that when she is finally killed, all of her family's wealth will be up for grabs. Anna left her headright to Lizzie, Lizzie to Molly and Rita, Rita then to Molly, giving her share of their mother's headright as well. Rita and Bill had been targeted at the same time, as their wills specify that if they died simultaneously, their headrights would be passed to Molly. Luckily, Bill survived the blast for a time and was able to place his family's headright with Molly before his death. Molly's wealth is controlled by her guardian, her husband, Ernest, who, as we will find out, was fully under his uncle William K. Hale's control. What White doesn't know, and neither do I, is if Ernest married Molly for the sole reason of playing out this plot, or at the very least, for the money. They were married for four years before the murders in Molly's family even began, so it's possible that Hale worked him over time to betray her. The case was still not finished in the fall of 1925, and White felt the pressure to close it from Hoover. He switched up his strategy a bit and learned of a fellow named Dick Gregg, who was in a Kansas prison serving a 10-year sentence for robbery. Another agent had told him once that Gregg had mentioned something about the murders, but was acting coy about it. So White met with Gregg in the prison, but Gregg was reluctant to give up Hale. But when White offers to shave some time off of his sentence, Gregg wises up. White then returned to his agents to tell them what he had learned. In the summer of 1922, Hale had met Greg's gang asking them to bump off Bill Smith and his wife for $2,000. The leader of the gang refused, so Hale tried to recruit Greg personally. Greg also informs White of another outlaw he should get in touch with, but that man was found to have died. White soon comes across a rodeo star and bootlegger by the name of Henry Grammer, who is also a friend of Hale's, but Grammer also has been dead since June of 1923. This led him to Asa Kirby, an associate of Grammer's, who was allegedly an expert on explosive. But White, once again, is frustrated to learn that Kirby, too, was dead. 
everyone is dead. How is White not dead yet? Especially as they know him to be the one major investigator. How has a huge target not been put literally on his head? Apparently, Kirby was shot and killed in a botched robbery, which was allegedly tipped off to authorities by none other than William Hale. Informant Kelsey Morrison warned Tom White and his agents that Hale knows that they're onto him and to be careful. But Hale is playing it off, becoming even more of an outwardly loving friend to the Osage, giving out loans and presents around town, acting like he owns the world. He could not have been more confident and delusional. <laughs> All the while, Tom White worried about Molly. He, much like Molly herself, did not believe that it was due to her diabetes that she was ill, but that she would soon be killed as well. John Wren had somehow heard of the letter Molly sent to the priest about her suspicions, and they began to wonder if the Schoen brothers could possibly be injecting Molly with poison instead of insulin. They got one more statement from yet another outlaw, Bert Lawson, who had much information about the explosion which killed the Smiths. He had been offered a job by Ernest to blow up Rita and Bill's home. Despite still working to confirm the details of Lawson's statements, on January 4, 1926, Tom White issued arrest warrants for Ernest Burkhart and William Hale for the murders of Bill and Rita Smith and their servant Nettie. He wanted to get them behind bars as soon as possible to ensure that Molly and anyone else would be safe. Ernest was taken in easily. He was found at his favorite billiards hall, but Hale was nowhere to be found. Days later, he casually strolled into the sheriff's office, dressed to the nines in a nice suit, and hands himself in. Between the nervous Ernest and the cocky Hale, it was clear who the agents would focus their efforts on. White and Agent Frank Smith questioned Ernest in a claustrophobic, sweaty box of an interrogation room for hours on end, but he refused to budge. After midnight, the agents let Ernest go back to his cell. In his frustration, White digs deeper and discovers that a man named Blackie Thompson also had information. Thompson was in prison. They had let him out for a little while as well to be an informant, but while he was loose, he ended up killing a police officer, so he was sent back to prison. So in order to get Thompson out, White had to make sure that nothing would go wrong and it would go off without a hitch. So they actually had a man across the street with a pistol aiming at Thompson the entire time he visited the jail where Ernest was, and he was made to wear shackles the entire time as well. When they brought Thompson to Ernest... That showed Ernest that they knew everything. Later that night, completely defeated, Ernest agrees to confess. Ernest said that while he didn't kill Bill and Rita, he knows who did. He told them that Hale had indeed concocted the scheme to kill them, and that he had initially protested this. But the reminder from Hale about the large inheritance that would come from them after the death of his in-laws swayed him to go along with it. Hale then began to recruit outlaws who would be willing to get their hands dirty, as Hale would never do any of the actual killing himself. Ernest told the agents that Hale had in fact gone to Asa Kirby, the explosives expert, to get the job done. Hale was all the way in Fort Worth, Texas when the bombing occurred, keeping him safe. Ernest also confirmed their suspicions that Hale had arranged for Henry Roan's murder to inherit the insurance money and identified a man named John Ramsey as the killer. John Ramsey is a real piece of shit. When he was arrested, he confessed to the role in the plot, but kept referring to Roan as the Indian and attempted to justify his crimes by saying that even now, quote, 
white people in Oklahoma think no more of killing an Indian than they did in 1724. Choke and die, bitch. Upon further questioning, Ernest revealed that Kelsey Morrison, the agency's own informant, had been the one to put the bullet in Anna Brown's head. He had literally been with them the entire time. Morrison was arrested and White sent a doctor to check on Molly. She was seeming to be near death and it seemed more clear than ever that she was also being poisoned. She was taken to the hospital and immediately, and thankfully, she began to feel better. The Schoen brothers were then brought in for questioning, but they admitted to nothing. When feeling well enough, Molly finally was submitted to questioning. When she was faced with the truth that her husband Ernest and his uncle Hale had been involved in everything, she refused to believe that her husband could have had anything to do with the plot against her family. She told the agent that she loves her husband, and she believes that he would never hurt anyone else, especially not her. Armed with all the necessary statements, Tom White confronted Hale, telling him that he has enough evidence to convict him of a vast criminal conspiracy. Hale remained unperturbed as White read out the evidence. White encouraged Hale to confess so they can avoid a bitter legal battle, but to that, Hale almost gleefully replies that he plans to fight. Soon, Hale is implicated in at least two more deaths, that of George Bigheart and another Osage by the name of Joe Bates, who had died in 1921. On January 15, 1926, the Society of Oklahoma Indians issued a resolution begging the federal state officials to vigorously prosecute the alleged perpetrators, worrying that the all-powerful Hale would walk away from all of this scot-free. White, too, was worried about corruption. But when officials found that Henry Roan was actually killed on an Osage allotment under the control of the federal government, suddenly Hale and Ramsey could be charged in federal court and they could face the death penalty. This way, they wouldn't have to worry about the state being swayed by him. This would be a federal case. But unfortunately, the real story is not a Hollywood movie, and there would be more hoops to jump through, so don't get too excited. A judge found that the case actually couldn't go in front of a federal court after all in March of 1926, and that Hale and Ramsey had to be tried at the state level. This pissed Tom White right off. <laughs> the men start to celebrate in court when they find this out, but then they are approached by the now Sheriff Frias, who, yes, he's back, who arrested both of the men under state charges for the bombing murders. When the trial began, the courtroom was full. Everyone wanted to, as one journalist put it, catch the drama of blood and gold. But Molly sat alone, quiet, away from the madness. She had been ostracized by her white neighbors who remained loyal to Hale. Molly now knew the truth of her in-laws' actions. But at this point, Molly was still loyal to Ernest, leaving her ostracized by the Osage people as well. She sat stoic throughout the proceedings and refused to answer any questions from the press. I can't imagine what must be going through her head and her heart, as she had always believed her husband to be a kind, gentle, and good man— how was she supposed to reconcile all of this new information? Even through all of these emotions she must be going through, Molly was always present at trial, except for a very short time when her youngest daughter, Anna, named for her sister, fell ill. She too passed away at just four years old. Although it is not suspected that this was due to any sort of foul play, 
the child was just very, very sick. Originally, Ernest had decided to testify for the prosecution. But at the start of the trial, Ernest was pulled aside by one of Hale's lawyers to speak privately. After their discussion, Ernest entered the courtroom with this man, now as his lawyer as well, and told the court that he would now be testifying for the defense, and he denied all involvement in the crimes in totality. Now let's fast forward through some of the proceedings, and it seems that Ernest once again was worn down. He finally claimed to be done lying and tells his lawyer he wants to go back to being a witness for the prosecution. Bro, make up your mind! He really is so wishy-washy. A new attorney took Ernest's case on, and Ernest admitted to his crime to the judge. At this, the courtroom erupted. Ernest Burkhart was convicted and sentenced to life imprisonment on June 21st, 1926. As he was led away, he turned and smiled at his wife, Molly, but her expression remained unchanged. And once again, this is part of the not-so-Hollywood yo-yoing of the story, but White learned that Hale would once again be prosecuted under the federal government, thankfully, for his involvement in Henry Roan's murder. And once again, the death penalty was put on the table. But there were still many fears when Hale's trial began. Would he attempt to bribe witnesses? Break out of jail? Would he even possibly sway the jury? White took all the precautions he could to ensure this trial would go off without a hitch. But no matter what White could do, will a jury of 12 white men really ever unanimously agree to punish another white man for killing American Indians? Members of the press and the Osage tribe felt doubtful. Ernest thankfully didn't go back and forth anymore and stuck with the prosecution, and his questioning went off well. And his testimony also made public what so many already knew, that the members of the Osage tribe were systematically killed and poisoned in order to obtain their head rights. The jury began deliberations after 20 days of trial, but as the days went by, they remained deadlocked. The judge learned that, like suspected, at least one or more of the jurors had been bribed by Hale's people. They were ordered to be dismissed, and the trial was scrapped. They would have to do it all over again. After another trial, the jury finally delivered a verdict at the end of October in 1926. They found John Ramsey and William K. Hale guilty of the murder of Henry Roan in the first degree, but they recommend a life prison sentence rather than death. The courtroom erupted, and Hale and Ramsey were taken away. One year later was the trial for Anna's murder. Molly sat and listened to the gruesome details of how her brother-in-law conspired to kill her sister. She was even there when Brian took the stand, recalling how he returned to the scene of the crime with Molly and her family to the ravine to see Anna's body. Kelsey Morrison, Anna's killer, was convicted. Molly no longer felt any loyalty, warmth, or love for Ernest after discovering all of the details of his horrific plot. She divorced him and for the rest of her life would recoil in horror at the mention of her former husband's name. After the trials, the Osage Tribal Council began urging Congress to pass a new law that would bar anyone who was not at least half Osage from inheriting head rights from a member of the tribe. Tom White ended up being sent to work at Leavenworth Prison, which was known to be corrupt and also happened to now house William Hale and John Ramsey. While there, White ordered a neurological and psych exam of Hale, which found that he has, quote, extremely vicious components in his makeup, 
but no psychosis. I think he's a raging narcissist. Hale would never admit to any of his actions in the conspiracy and would continue to try and bribe and scheme his way out of prison, confident through influence of his friends that he would one day be released. As for Molly, she worked to put her life back together. She started going to church again, and her health began to rapidly improve. In 1928, she fell in love with and married a Creek man, John Cobb. In April 1931, a court finally ruled that Molly was no longer a ward of the state, and at the age of 44, could now finally spend her own money as she pleased. Decades later, by the late 1950s, the world that was once so obsessed over the case of the reign of terror in Osage County had largely forgotten the tragedy, with newer stories like the kidnapping of the Lindbergh baby and other crimes against white people taking up all of the space in the media and in our memories. Tom White feared that the suffering that the Osage was put through and the work he and his agents went through to end that suffering would be forgotten. With the help of a part Osage writer friend, Fred Grove, White began writing their story. Even as Tom White's health begins to fail, he continued to work tirelessly on the book. But unfortunately, publishers found it less than captivating, and it was never published. Tom White died in December of 1971, and with his death, the story died as well. It wasn't until years later when the Bureau released several of the files related to the Osage investigation that the case was brought back to light and another even darker layer of the conspiracy was uncovered. Author of the novel Killers of the Flower Moon, David Gran, recalled learning of the story briefly in school, but after stumbling upon some information about the reign of terror somewhat randomly, he since became consumed with the desire to resolve any lingering questions and fill in any gaps that Tom White and his team had never uncovered. He was given the names of several Osage people who may have information for him about the murders when he arrives in Pawhuska, but is warned that it is still an incredibly delicate topic for many members of the tribe. The pain of the ordeal has never gone away, the trauma passing down through generations. Gran attended a festival that takes place all over the Osage Hills. There's dancing, singing, drumming, and celebrating of their history and culture. When there, he spotted a well-dressed Osage woman in her 50s. The woman then approached Gran and introduced herself as Margie Burkhart, Molly's granddaughter. Her father was James Cowboy Burkhart, Molly and Ernest's son. She told him that Molly had passed away in 1937, the same year that Ernest was paroled. Yes, you heard that right. Ernest was paroled after only serving 11 years of his life sentence. However, just three years later, this asshole robbed his former sister-in-law, Lily Burkhart, with a woman named Clara May Goad, stealing $7,000. With this, Ernest's parole was revoked, and he was sentenced to another seven years in prison. After serving that sentence, he resumed his life sentence at the Oklahoma State Penitentiary. But then he was paroled once again in 1959. After being on parole for five years, Ernest then applied for a fucking pardon in 1966, citing that his cooperation with the investigation was his reasoning for this. Somehow, this was enough for the Oklahoma Parole Board, who received a 3-2 to two vote for a full pardon granted by Oklahoma Governor Henry Bellman. Ernest Burkhart was officially a very free man. 
When Grand researched what Ernest had done after being pardoned, he learned that Ernest had lived for two more decades and spent the remaining years of his life in a trailer with his brother Brian just outside of Osage County. He passed away in 1986. Ernest was cremated, and he asked for his ashes to be left on the Osage Hills. His son James, instead, chucked them. As for William Hale, he never admitted to shit, nor did he ever show any sign of remorse. Yet, somehow, after only serving 18 years of his life sentence, Hale was paroled in July of 1947. And this is so confusing to me because I was always under the belief that you had to admit to your crimes and show some sort of remorse in order to be paroled, but maybe it was different at the time? I'm not sure. If anyone else knows the answer, let me know. A condition to his parole was that Hale would be banished from ever returning to Osage County again. He ended up in Montana where he worked as a ranch hand for a career criminal then he went to Arizona, where he eventually passed away in a nursing home there in August of 1962. Margie Burkhart never met Hale, and she only saw Ernest once after he got out of prison the second time. When he returned to Osage County after being pardoned, Margie, who had just become a teenager, met her grandfather. She was surprised how kind and grandfatherly he seemed, nothing like the heinous monster she had imagined who took out most of her family. She told Gran that her father and aunt, Liz, were ostracized by the tribe throughout their lives for being the children of Ernest Burkhart. Her aunt Liz lived as a paranoid woman, moving place to place, changing addresses and phone numbers often, always living in fear. As for James, Margie says he longed for his father's affections, even after all he had done. James even visited his father frequently in the mouse-infested trailer just outside of Osage County. As Gran continued his search, he began to find many holes in White's investigation. Authorities insisted that since Hale and his conspirators had been convicted, the cases were closed with great triumph, even though Hale was not connected to all 24 known murders at the time. Gran wonders who was responsible for the deaths of Barney McBride and the lawyer W.W. Vaughn. He met with the descendants of Vaughn's, who had theorized that Hale had wanted him silenced. But when the family continued to do their own investigation after his death and Hale was in prison, they were still receiving death threats. So it had to be someone else. Vaughn's granddaughter shared one other thing, that there was a man named H.G. Burt, who had embezzled money from her grandfather after his death. Gran learned as much as he could about this Burt fellow, including the fact that he and Hale had actually been friends. Of course they were. And Burt was also attached to the death of Vaughn's client, George Bigheart. H.G. Burt was actually the guardian to George Bigheart's daughter, meaning that Burt and possibly even Hale could financially benefit from Bigheart's death. It was also proven that Bert had been on the train with his friend Vaughn when he traveled back to the Osage. He was also the first to report Vaughn's disappearance, so I think we can pretty well assume that Bert was responsible for W.W. Vaughn's death. Gran also saw a letter written by Hale from prison to a member of the Osage tribe that had been donated to the Constantine Theater in Pawhuska. In the letter, he wrote that he would, quote, always be a friend to the Osage. Go fuck yourself. Gran met more and more people who had ancestors who had died under mysterious circumstances, whose murders were never properly investigated. Many of these murders occurred before and after the reported era for the Reign of Terror, 
meaning the conspiracy for Osage headrights was so much bigger than Hale and Burkhart. He confirmed what many had suspected. Grand's big conspiracy that he uncovered was that there had been a vast criminal operation that was reaping millions and millions of dollars that had been stolen from the Osage by way of embezzlement, fraud, and non-Osage murdering Osage spouses. At the height of their wealth, the Osage's death rate was more than double what it is today, pointing to the staggering level of foul play and evil occurring at that time. Many families to this day have no closure or resolution and live in doubt and fear, uncertain of who among their family trees might have been the culprit. In addition to the Osage victims connected to Molly and her family, there were 13 other deaths of Osage men and women between 1921 and 1923 who had had white guardians appointed by the court. By 1925, no fewer than 60 Osage had perished, with their land being transferred to their guardian. There were many other murders, possibly hundreds, that would go unsolved. But there was still one question that Gran hadn't been able to answer. Who poisoned Molly? Tom White couldn't prove that it was the Schoen brothers, and many suspected that Ernest could have been the one poisoning his wife, too. Gran wondered if Ernest was the one doing the poisoning, and if he was, if he was aware of what he was doing. He was just giving her what the Schoen brothers had given him to administer to Molly. But the suspicion is still there, since Ernest would also give Molly her nightly whiskey and could have poisoned her that way as well. Gran also theorizes, though this could never be proven, Hale's ultimate plan may have been to murder even his nephew, leaving him to inherit all of Molly's family's money for himself. And I want to add this little part too, because I didn't know where else to put this in the episode. Gran and others wondered whether or not Anna was actually pregnant with William Hale's baby. And if so, he orchestrated the murder of his own unborn child, whether knowingly or unknowingly. Now that the movie Flowers of the Killer Moon is out, I'm hopeful that more and more people will be interested in this story and learning more about the history of the Osage people and the travesties that they went through. This is such a terrible black mark on American history. But there are some people who are not really happy with the way that Molly and some of the other Osage people were portrayed in the film. Scorsese did seem to do his best to move around the story from what he originally had planned because originally Leonardo DiCaprio was going to be playing Tom White and the story was going to be focused solely on the BOI's investigation and the agency and all that kind of stuff. But then Scorsese decided to change this and switched Leonardo DiCaprio's role to being that of Ernest Burkhart, which was originally given to Jesse Plemons. And then Jesse Plemons became Tom White's character, so on and so forth. And in Time Magazine, Martin Scorsese actually said that he wasn't happy with his first pass at the screenplay because, quote, I realized I was making a movie about all the white guys meaning I was taking the approach from the outside in, which concerned me. An article from Vox says, Key to all of this was the choice to put Ernest and Molly's romance at the center, not only because Lily Gladstone's elegant seriousness is a serious foil for DiCaprio's interpretation of Ernest as weak and silly, an easily manipulated man whom Molly nonetheless loves. You start to understand why she stayed with him long past when it made any sense. But Devery Jacobs, an indigenous actor who played Alora in the TV drama Reservation Dogs, posted on social media, Being native, watching this movie was fucking hellfire. 
Imagine the worst atrocities committed against your ancestors than having to sit through a movie explicitly filled with them, with the only respite being 30-minute-long scenes of murderous white guys talking about slash planning the killings. Elizabeth Rule, a citizen of the Choctaw Nation and assistant professor at the American University in Washington, says, It was a very difficult film for me to personally watch as a Native viewer. I see that coming through as one of the more dominant critiques, and that absolutely holds true for me and my experience as well. But just because it was challenging to watch doesn't mean that it isn't important to witness and bear witness to these devastating stories. We have to remember that these were depictions of true, brutal, premeditated murders of indigenous people, and so we should get upset and feel deeply uncomfortable, taking in these scenes of violence and especially all the more so because they reflect a true history— In this way, I do see the value of the film coming from its ability to raise awareness, especially among non-Native viewers, about the violence our communities face historically and still today. The other critique that she gave was that they wanted the perspective of the Indigenous characters more in the forefront of the storytelling, particularly Molly's story. The film gave you a look into the family's experiences, but the story of the violence is a common one shared by hundreds of tribes across the United States, And it also didn't start or end in the 1920s. Viewers were left wanting to know more about Molly during this story and less about the white people that controlled her life around her. And I understand that as well. I really did my best to try to understand Molly more in my research and focus on her experience as much as I could. But unfortunately, it's true. These white people came in and took control over every single aspect of her life, her family, her money, her religion, her home, her attire, and then they literally killed them all off just to get her money. Molly is so fucking strong to have gone through all of that, and I am so amazed by her as a person. I hope that for those of you who didn't know this story, that this was incredibly educational for you. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I feel like this is such an unbelievably important story to be telling. So for that, I am glad that there is a very successful book and movie out there. I highly recommend anyone who enjoyed this episode to go either download Killers of the Flower Moon on Audible or go and get the book because there's so much information in that book that I could not put in this episode or else I would turn into an Osage Reign of Terrors podcast and I'm not prepared to do that just yet. So if you enjoy the story, go deeper, do some more research, do some reading. It is such an amazing, fascinating story. And David Grant just did so much fantastic research and writing and everything going into this book. I highly, highly, highly recommend it. I haven't actually seen the movie yet. I'm hoping to see it as soon as I possibly can. And uh, yeah, maybe I'll do an extra little like recap episode after I see the movie to kind of tell you all what I thought of the depictions of everything. All right, that's all I have for you today. Just a reminder that there is a new Patreon episode available for the Angry Feminist Book Club. I actually covered a documentary last month instead of a book, but you can listen to my episode covering the documentary Dope is Death by going to patreon.com slash angryneighborhoodfeminist and joining the Angry Feminist Book Club for $5 a month. Also, I have decided that the final book for the book club for the month of December is going to be The Bell Jar. 
I read it a couple months ago. I loved it so much. I want to read it again and I want to discuss it with all of you. So that is going to be the final book for the Angry Feminist Book Club before January 2024 when I start Mad Gabin with Madigan, an advice column, a question and answer sort of situation. We'll see what it turns into. But if you want to support the show even more and get even more extra content, you can join the Feminist Faves level for $8 a month, where you get all of these episodes ad-free, you get them a little bit early. And now, on Monday, after each full-length episode, I am going to be releasing a recap episode, kind of going over the episode a little bit, maybe mentioning some things that I left out, adding some extra stories, so on and so forth. And those will be going up every week, and they're pretty great. Also, if you haven't done so already, I would so greatly appreciate more ratings and reviews. That can be your holiday present to me. So if you haven't done so already and you have an iPhone, I would really appreciate you going over to your Apple Podcast app, leaving a five-star review with a quick sentence about why you enjoy the show. The Apple Podcast reviews, more than anything else, really, 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 really helps me. So I would really, really appreciate it. But if you also like to listen on Spotify, I'm not going to be mad at you for rating me over there either. All right. Thank you for putting up with my sick, sick self this week. That is all I have for you today. With all that being said, I encourage you to rage on. Bye. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.